Welcome. We are so glad that you are joining us here online at Northeast. My name is Brennan Johnson. I'm the student director of ministry here at Northeast. Um, this is actually my second time getting to be with you online, my first time getting to be with you this, um, in person this coming Sunday. And oh my goodness, people are just telling me it's going to be great your second time around. You got those nervous jitters out the first time, and you don't have to be so worried about, you know, public speaking in front of, you know, the whole church. And I have to tell you, that is completely false. I am still just as nervous as I was the first time. Because listen, I know, I know how this works, right? I'm, I'm around on the social media. I watched Saturday morning cartoons, right? I know that when you have a speaker on stage and things are going poorly, out of nowhere, vegetables and fruits start getting chucked out. The frowny emojis start getting clicked on on Facebook. So I really want to avoid that as all possible. So I had this idea here's what I'll do. I'll go online and look at other youth pastors and see what they did when they preached on Sunday morning. I thought it was a really good idea. You've heard of that one youth pastor who's like amazing at preaching on Sunday morning, right? You know the one I'm talking about? Yeah, me neither. I couldn't find any. I'm only kidding. I really do consider it a great honor and a privilege to be here preaching with you all, bringing God's word, especially following some great messages from Monty, from Micah, and Keith. I've really just enjoyed this series on parables and looking at stories that Jesus told. You know, I think there's something special about stories that we're drawn to. I think we're innately drawn to them. There's something that we gravitate towards. I mean, just look at culture today, right? Back in March, around when coronavirus hit, that was the story. Everybody was covering it. But then give it a month or so, and it, I guess it got boring almost because out of nowhere, like my worst fear came true. Murder hornets had entered the United States. And for those of you who know me, I am terrified of wasps. And I'm like, oh my goodness, 2020 can't get any worse. First coronavirus, and now murder hornets are coming, right? It seems like stories need to stay exciting. We, something is always happening that we're drawn to. Or looking at social media, there's always a new story, a new report coming out that people are immediately drawn to. Or take this. I think movie culture has exploded, right, in a way that we might not have imagined. Now, indulge me a little bit, but I'm a huge, huge Marvel fan. I know, I know, the youth pastor likes superheroes. But I love Marvel movies, and not just for the spectacle and the action. I think there's something relatable to them. For instance, the Captain America movie isn't about a guy with a shield punching some Nazis. It's really about a guy who's going to do the right thing no matter what. We like that idea. Or Iron Man isn't just about a guy who makes a super awesome robot suit. It's really about a man who's realized he's made mistakes and wants to be better. Or Thor, it's not about this guy with luscious blonde hair and a hammer that shoots lightning. It's really about an immature young man growing up and accepting responsibility. Or the Avengers, last one, I promise. The Avengers, it's not just about seeing all of them on the big screen together. It's really about watching them set aside their differences and work together. There's these qualities and stories that we're drawn to, that we naturally relate to. 
And I have so loved how Micah and Keith, when we went through the parable of the prodigal son and the parable of the sower, we looked at every perspective, right? At the parable of the prodigal son, we looked at the father, the prodigal son, but also the older brother. And we asked ourselves that tough question. Micah asked us that question. Do we sometimes turn our nose up when people want to come back to the church? Do we see any of ourselves there? It's a tough question to ask, and it's an even tougher question to answer. Or looking at the parable of the sower, when we've got the good soil, we obviously want to be there, but we have to ask ourselves, do I see myself in any of the other soils? Those are hard questions to ask, but I think they're worth asking because when we do that, they'll help us grow in our faith. When I was seven, I went to a place called Canicut Camps out in Branson, Missouri. And oh my goodness, it was my favorite place on earth. Its slogan was the happiest place on earth. And that was true for seven-year-old me. I looked forward to it every year, was always excited to go back. It was the highlight of my year. And I think one of the most ingenious things that they did at Canicook is they did what was called the gospel skit. They would take the gospel and then they would put it into a theme. Maybe it's pirates one year. Maybe it's a western. Maybe it's like a medieval fairy tale, right? Whatever it is, they take the story of Jesus and put it into a story that's relatable to little seven-year-old me. And I remember when my parents came back, that was the first thing I wanted to tell them about. Dad, you won't believe it. This guy went to save his daughter and then he died, but then he came back. It was amazing. Stories are powerful. And the best stories have something for all of us to relate to. So I have a focus question that I want us to always be asking ourselves when we are going through this parable in Luke 14. And that question is, where do I see myself in this story? You see, if we can ask that question of ourselves and answer it honestly, I think that will open the door for us to grow in our faith. We're going to be in Luke 14 today, starting in verse 16, but let me kind of set the context for you. Let me set the scene, so to speak. Jesus is at a Pharisee's house, and he's being watched. He knows he's being watched, but in typical Jesus fashion, he's kind of watching everyone else at this table, right, seeing what they're doing, and he sees that there are people who are clamoring to be higher up at the table as a sign of status, and so being Jesus, he says something that we might expect him to say. You, those of you should sit lower at the table. So when you're brought up, you're exalted. Instead of sitting higher, and when you're brought down, you'll be humbled. But he goes even further saying, you should invite the poor, the lame, the blind, the crippled, all of the people that can't repay you to this banquet. And that sets the scene for verse 16. Let's take a look. Jesus replied, a certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servants to tell those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. 
So let's pause here for a second. There's one thing we need to understand when we're talking about banquets. Back then, they don't necessarily have a watch, right? Or necessarily a clock. So you can't keep time to an exact measurement, right? You can keep time, but you can't be like, I need you to show up at 3.33 on the dot. You couldn't do that. And so what you would do is you would send two invitations. You would send an invitation well beforehand, inviting people to the banquet, saying, hey, clear off this day, because on this day, you all are coming to my house, and we're going to have a feast. And you would either accept or deny the invitation, depending on your availability. If you accepted, you were going to hold that day. And on that day, you would receive the second invitation. The invitation saying, hey, come at sunset. We'll be ready to have you. Be ready for a great time. And then you would know when you need to show up at the banquet. Let's keep going in verse 18. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I have just bought a field, and I must go see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I have just bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. Right? All of the guests seem to have a reason for denying the master's invitation, for denying the host's invitation. And I think if we look at them a little bit closer, we'll see that there might be a deeper weight to the reasons behind their refusal. And understand this, to refuse the second invitation was a grave insult to the man hosting the banquet because you had already committed that you were gonna come. And their excuses seem rather weak. For instance, the first man purchased a field and was on his way to inspect it. Now let me ask you this, how many of you would go buy a house without you at least going to look at it, right? And probably, if you're like me, you would get someone to go inspect that house and make sure the foundation is strong, the walls are good, you don't have murder hornets in your house, you don't want those nesting, right? You're making sure that that house is a good purchase for you and your family. Probably a lot of us, right? So what kind of man back then, this is the same thing, would go buy a field for farming or for building his homestead, who would do that without inspecting it first? So either he's a foolish man for not inspecting what he's purchasing, or he's just making an excuse to get out of this commitment. The second man has said, I'm sorry, I can't go, but I just bought five yoke of oxen. I'm pretty awesome, right? That's kind of like, I guess, buying a new car, right? And, but how many of us would go buy a new car without giving it a test drive first? You know, give it a spin around the block, make sure it's good. But there's something else that I think is interesting about the second man. It says that he's already on his way to go inspect them. So he accepted the first invitation and then actively chose before the second one came to go inspect his oxen. He had already chosen that he was not gonna go to the banquet. The first two excuses seem to hinge on materialism. Things were getting in the way of them experiencing the banquet that the master had prepared for them. Now the third excuse that one seems to have a little more validity, right? It says, I'm sorry, I can't come. I'm getting married. I mean, that seems like a pretty good excuse. I love my wife. I would make sure I got married to her. I would obviously make sure I get married to her. I love her so much. But let's look at it a little bit. If you had known you were getting married on that day, 
Should you have accepted the first invitation? You should have said, no, I'm sorry, I can't. I've already made plans to get married that day. But if you hadn't and accepted it and then made plans, you again were actively deciding not to go to the banquet, even though you said that you were going to do. So in the end, all three of these are excuses, plain and simple, looking for ways to get out of accepting the invitation. Now, how many of you are like me? When I get home from a long day, the first thing I want to do is go sit back in my recliner, you know, kick my legs up and just have a nice cold ale late, right, and just relax for a second. And sometimes when that happens, I'll get a text from my buddies, my pals, say, hey, do you want to go see this movie? Do you want to go out to eat? You want to come over for board games? And sometimes I'll be like, look, guys, I would love to, but I'm just kind of tired right now, and I think I'm going to stay in tonight. We've all probably had that moment. And when we have those moments, I think we expect, well, the next time something happens, they'll invite me, right? I think I see that a little bit here. I think these guests expected to get an invitation in the future to the next banquet. But as we're going to see soon, that never comes. And I think there's an important takeaway we need to stop and look at here. Just as the master, as the host's invitation was rejected, so can God's invitation to salvation be ignored. Or let me say it like this. No excuse is good enough to reject the invitation to participate in God's kingdom. We looked at all three of these excuses and all of them were found wanting. They weren't enough to justify them missing out on the banquet, missing out on participating in God's kingdom. Let's keep going a little bit and see what the master does in response. Starting in verse 21, the servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and the alleys of the town. Bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there is still room. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and country lanes, And make them come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those men who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. So let's pause for a second. Let's ask ourselves our focus question for today. Where do I see myself in this story? You know, I think there's three groups of people in this story. The first group is the group we've been talking about. The group that rejected the master's invitation. And we see that not only did the host invite other guests, but the host shut the door to them so that they couldn't come back. They missed an opportunity to spend time with the master. They missed it. It went right past them. And don't get me wrong. There's nothing wrong with owning a cool car, having a nice house, having a nice farm. All of those are good things. But if these good things keep you from participating in the kingdom of God, they become bad things. Let me me say it again. If these good things keep you from participating in the kingdom of God, they become bad things. I know I've found myself guilty of being in that spot before where I have let something get in the way of my relationship with God. I can definitely relate to that group in times of my life. The second group is the people who were welcomed into the banquet 
right? The master says, go out and find the people in the lanes, the alleys, the countryside. Invite them into my banquet. And these are the people that would never be invited to a banquet like this. The people who were pushed out of society, the lame, the crippled, the blind, the people that people did not associate with. He says, go find them for my house will be full. I love that. Go find them because I want as many people to be with me at my banquet. Maybe you see yourself a little bit there. Maybe you haven't encountered Jesus before or encountered the radical love that he offers. And maybe today he is reaching out to you. He wants you to be a part of his kingdom, a part of his family. He wants you to be at his banquet because his house will be full. The third group that I think a lot of us might relate to is the servants. You see, the servants were told to go out and make the people feel welcome, bring them in, not force them in, kind of like an insistent hospitality. Okay, I have a story. It's like this. When I first met my mother-in-law, I know I could get in trouble for this story. When I first met my mother-in-law, she offered me thing after thing. For instance, Brennan, would you like a glass of water? Oh, that's okay. I'm good. How about a Coke? Oh, I'm good. How about an AL8? No, thank you. What about, would you like some ramen noodles, some macaroni and cheese? Would you like some McDonald's? I'll just make a steak dinner for you. How does that sound? And I realized that she wanted to care for me and she wanted to be a gracious host and show kindness and love to me in the way that she offered me things. She had an insistent hospitality, and so now I know to accept the first thing she offers me whenever I go over to visit, because it won't stop until I say yes to something, right? That kind of insistent hospitality of, I want to show you kindness, I want to show you love. The master says the word compel. Compel them, and I think they're called to compel the people with love. The same radical, unconditional love that Jesus has shown us. But not only are they called to compel, they're called to go out where they are, the alleys, the lanes, the countrysides. And if we are going to do the same thing, to go out and love the people of Lexington, love the people of Kentucky, love the people of the world, we have to go out to where they are and show them that love of Jesus. You know, when I went to Canacuck, one of the things I wasn't ready for at that camp was opening day. All right? I was a small, scrawny little seven-year-old, very shy, very shy, and I get out of the car, and they separate me from my parents, and they take me to this tarped tunnel that leads to the main stage. It's like my nightmare. This is exactly what I did not want to happen. And I get up to the stage, and I think there's a picture about to show up. I get up to the stage, and they say, all right, what's your name? And I look over kind of awkwardly, as you can tell. Uh, Brennan. They say, okay, who wants Brennan to be a part of their cabin? And all of a sudden, all 20 of these male college counselors lose their mind. I want him. He's going to be in my cabin. No, he's going to be in my cabin. And they start fake wrestling over me. And that welcome that radical welcome brought such a smile to my face. And then they finally announced me and someone comes up to get me in this giant, I don't know, suit, inflatable suit. And that, oh my goodness, I can't tell you what that welcome did for me. Being instantly welcomed in that community of believers abolished all of the fears I had about going into that week and leaving my parents behind. I knew that these people were crazy about me 
and that they wanted me to be a part of this community, all because of their radical welcome. And it's because of their radical welcome that we get a picture like this. I know, you can kind of see my face here. I, I think it's pretty cute. My fashion sense is impeccable, right? The red swim trunks with a different shade of red Crocs. I mean, that's phenomenal right there. But I look at that picture and I see the joy on my face of being in a community of believers that is welcoming me for all my weirdness and my quirks and being as small and skinny as I was. They were gonna welcome me and show me the love of Jesus. We are called to love the people of our community and show them a kindness and a radical welcome that doesn't exist anywhere else. We are called to love people and invite them to encounter Jesus. We're called to love people and invite them to encounter Jesus. Well, that seems like a good spot to go ahead and stop. That's where the parable ends. I'm kidding, I'm kidding. But sometimes I wonder Do we stop the story there? And that's a great point to end on. We are called to love people and invite them to encounter Jesus. But I think we would be remiss not to go a little bit further. You see, Jesus actually doesn't stop there. Yes, the parable ends, but what comes right after, I think is very, very important. Let's take a look at verse 25. Verse 25, large crowds were traveling with Jesus And turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. What? Doesn't that seem so different than what we just talked about in the parable? Right? Jesus is comparing coming to him as accepting an invitation to a grand banquet. And that invitation is for all. The master wants to fill his house. And then we go a few verses down and he says, Oh, but if you don't hate your father and mother, brother and sister, wife and daughter, and yourself, you can't be my disciple? How do we balance those two things? That seems so different than what we saw in this parable. Well, let's look at it a little bit. First off, I think hate is a strong word, intentionally used, but might be misunderstood. I think it's not an absolute kind of word, but more of a relative. Back then, the family was very important. And for you to put something above your family, other than God, above your family, that would be interpreted as neglect. That is a slight to your family. It could be interpreted as hating your family, because family was supposed to have a very high priority in your life. And what seems like Jesus is saying is, I need to be a priority in your life, the top priority in your life. He's boldly saying that the true disciple comes to him without reservation, putting him first. And you can only do that when you make the decision to deny yourself. In verse 27, he says something really powerful that would have grabbed the attention of everyone listening in that crowd. They would have immediately understood what he was saying. He said, you have to carry your cross to follow me and my disciple. That is a powerful image today and maybe even a more powerful image back then. You see, they would have immediately understood that condemned criminals carry their cross. In fact, condemned criminals carry their cross to their place of execution. 
Jesus had to do it when he was put to death on the cross, to carry his cross there. It was a one-way ticket. You knew if you saw someone carrying their cross that they were not coming back. It was a one-way journey, and you were going to die at the end of that journey. That's a radical image that Jesus is saying, and he's saying, to be my disciple, you have to carry your cross. And sometimes I wonder, do we present the gospel as just believing a few facts about Jesus instead of surrendering your life to him? And don't get me wrong, I wanna be very clear here. We can never give people the impression that they have to clean up their lives before they come to Jesus. By no means is that what I'm saying. My life wasn't put together when Jesus found me and I turned to him. It still isn't put together. We can never give that impression. But at the same time, we can never give the impression that Jesus won't want to shape their lives after they come to him. You see, Jesus didn't leave me where I was at when I came to him in middle school. He helped me to grow and look more like him. So in reality, I think we're talking about two different things, salvation and discipleship. You see, salvation is open to all who come by faith. That is the invitation to fill the master's house, to be a part of God's kingdom. That is open to any and all, the lame, the blind, the crippled, whoever you are, God is desiring a relationship with you. Discipleship is for believers who are willing to pay the cost, willing to pay the price. Salvation means coming to the cross and trusting Jesus. Discipleship means carrying your cross and following Jesus. You know, year after year, I went for Canacuck for 10 years, and it was such a powerful experience every time. I loved that radical welcome, that immediate entry into the community of believers, but it seemed like every time I went home, I would lose that connection with God. I would fall back into my sinful habits, my sinful patterns, and I would stay stuck in that lifestyle, and I caused a lot of doubt in my walk with Christ. And I remember coming back to camp, talking to my counselor super late at night, why don't I feel close to God anymore? Why am I not growing in my relationship with him? Why are these bad things happening in the world around me? And they were so gracious in spending a lot of time talking with me at night, but it never quite clicked until I saw something. You see, in middle school, we, I had gone to a new camp, all right? We, there was a new campground that Canacuck had. It was right next to one of their high school camps. And so we were at their high ropes course, way up in the top. And at this point, I hadn't overcome my fear of heights, not by a long shot. So I am firmly on the ground, cheering my friends on, but firmly on the ground. And right to the right of us is a very steep driveway hill. And we would have to walk this hill occasionally, and oh my goodness, it burned your thighs. It was a rough hill to walk. And on the other side was the high school camp. And so I look over, and I see a really interesting sight. I see a group of high school guys and their counselor with one of these. With a cross. And the challenge was simple. If you can carry this cross up the hill you'll be rewarded. You'll get to go raid the kitchen, get all the junk food you want, which was really a privilege back at camp. They actually were pretty healthy out there. And so one by one, I watched these high school guys 
put this cross on their back and attempt to carry it up this steep hill. And let me tell you, this is not light. It's pretty heavy, it's unwieldy, and this is smaller than the one they had out there. And I watched these guys struggle to pull this thing up that hill, struggle. Some can't even get it off the ground, and every time they have to set it down. And I watched them one by one, all 14 of them, try to lift this and take it up the hill. And they can't. So then the counselor changes the rules. He says, I see you all are struggling with this cross by yourself. I see you're struggling to get it up, this challenge in front of you. Why don't you all work together? And you see, it was in that moment, this image was burned into my mind. All of 14 of these high school guys coming up to this cross and carrying it together. And let me tell you, that hill was long and it was steep and it took them at least 20 minutes, 30 minutes to carry this cross up the hill. But let me tell you, they did it. You see, carrying your cross is hard to do. It can be hard to do alone. But carrying your cross with the community of people around you, that makes it a little bit easier. And watching them plant this cross at the top of that hill, sweaty, sweat dripping down their shirts, panting for breath, the image stuck in my mind. That's what I needed when I went back home. I needed a community of believers who would help me carry my cross every day. Because I would go to camp and I would see this cross and I would try and take it home, but when I went back home, a new challenge would hit me. That same sinful habit that I'd been struggling with for years was staring me in the eye and I struggled to do it on my own. But it was around that time that I found a youth group of my own and they helped me carry my cross. They helped me deny myself, put to death my sinful habits so I could chase after Jesus. Carrying your cross is hard by yourself. But church, as a community of believers, we are called to encourage, motivate, and uplift each other on this journey that we're called to take. This journey of denying ourselves, carrying our cross so people can see Jesus around us. And let me be clear, we could sooner buy everything on earth, all the boats, all the mansions, all the houses, all the cars, before we could earn our way into heaven. Jesus paid the price, the cost of salvation. There is nothing we can do to earn that. He has given that gift to us freely. He has given it to us. We come and trust him. We cannot earn that. But our faith can't fail to appreciate what he did on that cross, taking our sin off of our backs and putting it on his, and him paying the price of that sin, which is death. Maybe you're here today, and you've never experienced Jesus's love for you. He is pursuing you. He wants to have a relationship with you. He wants you to be in his house, to be at his banquet. He wants you to be free and to have a relationship with him. Maybe some of you have been a part of the church for a really long time. We, I've been a part of the church for a really long time, and it can be easy to fall into a habit, into a rut, to kind of go through the motions. And sometimes, and oh, in my life this is true, I can feel disconnected. 
I can feel removed from God. I can find that, oh man, I got way more angry than I should have today. Where did that come from? And church, we are called to deny ourselves, to set aside our sinful habits and to take up our cross and follow after Jesus. We're called to love people and invite them to encounter Jesus. But we are also called to carry our cross and become his disciple. So what is the cost of discipleship? I think it's denying ourselves and replacing it with Jesus. It is taking up our cross and following after Christ and letting him shine through us. Let me pray for us. Father, we are so thankful for the price that you paid on that cross, freeing us from the sin in our life and enabling us to have a relationship with you for eternity, that one day we will get to join you in heaven for a banquet that will never end, for a relationship that's face-to-face. We look forward to that day, Lord. And Lord, we want to be ambassadors for you. We want to leave our sin behind and to pick up our cross and carry it so people can see your love through us. Lord, we love you. Be with us as we go out into the world this week and help us shine your light wherever we go. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us here online at Northeast. We're so glad that you did. We'll see you next week.